Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done. It'd be better. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Well, I'd like to talk to you about uh, two important things. First one is climate change, and uh, the second one is motivation. Climate change is very real. Uh, Gus, uh, mate, there's a word missing there. Can you just... Ah, yeah, that's right. Gospel climate change. Right. With this crowd, it better be. Um, gospel climate change has happened in Australia. I'm now old enough to see it very clearly. In the almost 30 years since I finished Bible college, the environment, the, the, the big story has, has really changed. Now, Rory's explained it to us uh, brilliantly uh, in terms of secularisation and what's happened in the last 50 or so years. Um, What I want to do is just talk to you quickly about the flip side of that, if you like, because as secularisation has expanded, something else has contracted. In fact, I think it's pretty much disappeared, and that is Christendom. Uh, Christendom is disappearing. Now, I I know they say um, nostalgia ain't what it used to be, But if you think about Christendom, it really now, it's just nostalgia. What is Christendom? The younger ones say, well, let me show you. Uh, John Gladwin wrote an article in the New Dictionary of Theology. Uh, That's one of those books that you buy at Bible college and never open again, really. But I've I've found the definition. Let me give it to you. Here's Christendom and see if it rings a bell. The term Christendom has come to be particularly applied to that period of Christian history in which Christian religion was an integral and fundamental part of the social order. When did that begin, you ask? He continues, The turning point in Christian history which changed the relationship of the church to the state from one of hostility or grudging acceptance to one of, note the words, privilege and mutual affirmation was the conversion of Constantine in 312 AD, the Roman emperor. The arrival of the Christian emperor in time changed the whole relationship of the church to the state. And notice what he says, Christendom is about privilege and mutual affirmation. 
And of course, Constantine was the saviour of, uh, of the Christian church. He brought privilege, affirmation, and over the centuries, the church, well, in parts of the Middle Ages, the church ruled with political power. And in the last, well, couple of centuries, the, the church became chaplain to the state in the Western world. And when did this begin to fade away? The article concludes, it's taken a combination of the Enlightenment, secularisation, political revolution and reform, the development of a pluralistic society, a pluralistic social order finally to destroy the reality of Christendom. Only memories remain in the aspects of our culture in folk religion. It's absolutely spot on. If you look though, you can see where Christendom used to flourish. I'll give you one example. It talks about folk religion, Anzac Day, and don't hear me knock Anzac Day, I think it's a great thing. I've you know, I go to dawn services, right? Um, uh, but Anzac Day has now become basically folk religion. It, Anzac Day is beginning to fill up the spiritual void of a, of a godless country. And if you're a gospel preacher, work out how to use the heart of Anzac Day to explain that you can work it out. Uh, but Anzac Day is an anachronism. If you go to the Veteran Affairs website, they actually tell you that if you're going to run a dawn service, you've got to use, guess what? Bible readings, prayers and hymns. Why? It's because Anzac Day dawn services started 90 years ago and it's been in a kind of a time warp. You can't change what's sacred. And yet you realise when I go to a dawn service, there's a real kind of a gear crunch that there's a public event and they talk about the Bible and or... Now, there are some markers in our country that just show how much things have changed. One, for example, is Mr. Eternity, uh, Arthur Stace. Now, if you're not from Sydney, forgive me, it's a Sydney illustration. Arthur Stace died in 1967. He'd become a Christian 35, 40 years earlier, uh, illiterate, couldn't read or write, but he learned to write the word eternity in beautiful copper plate letters. They estimate he got up at 5am um, regularly, uh, went out and wrote eternity in chalk. They estimate he wrote it half a million times. He's buried in Botany Cemetery, just 10 or 12 k's down the road. So much a part of Sydney that eternity was put on the Harbour Bridge during the year 2000, millennial celebrations. Eternity. And yet I just noticed a marker that really struck me. Um, Bondi Beach, what, three kilometres this way? I run down there on a Saturday morning and as you run past, someone has put up another piece of graffiti. It doesn't say eternity. Can you pick the difference? Side by side, they look the same and then... Yeah, and that says a lot. I won't go into it. You guys can join the dots. Uh, The forces against, let me say, religion seem unstoppable. So Roy Williams in his book, um, Post-God Nation, lists a massive decline in church attendance. Um, Interesting, he he lists a whole series of factors, but the biggest single factor he lists is the fact that just incredible wealth of our country. We are now three times richer in real terms than we were in the 1950s. And we continue to get richer. It's never enough, but then that's what our Lord said, isn't it? Um, Although when I asked Roy, had the numbers of actual born-again, Bible-loving, Jesus-serving Christians actually declined, he couldn't answer me. Now that, I guess, fair enough. How can you tell? But anyway. So where's God in all this? Why has God allowed this climate change to happen? Interesting, the climate climate change scientists, in terms of uh, weather, tell us, that climate change killed the dinosaurs. Uh, We've got Gary Larson here. Uh, You can see, why did the dinosaurs disappear? Well, they 
couldn't adapt to change. Now, somehow when I think of dinosaurs, I think of denominations. Um, not that I want to... <laughs> Not that I want to link them. I guess it's just that they both start with D. I think that's why it is in my head. D. Ah, yeah, right. Okay. Um, Many of our denominations, not all, not yours, but many of our denominations (laughs) are suffering from, shall we say, religious climate change. And if they haven't disappeared yet, they're on palliative care. The difficulty is you can't kill a denomination with a stick. It just takes a very long time to die. I heard a man last week. A nice man, a kind man, a sincere man, but he had embraced liberal theology. Two of his heroes were Bultmann and John Spong. And he'd embraced liberal theology and the denomination that he worked with had embraced liberal theology. And then surprise, surprise, he said later, that denomination had, he quoted, 900 manses or ministers' houses and only 300 ministers to put into them. And I worked out there's something like half a billion dollars worth of Christian resources sitting there and evangelicals will probably never see any of it. It's, it's ironic that Christianity created the Western world. Just read Vishal Mangawadi's The Book That Made Your World. It, it's, it's brilliant. The value of the individual, the welfare system, the rise of science, the rule of law, that lawmakers are under the law themselves, democracy, modern medicine, the creation of wealth, and the list goes on. And... Christianity no longer has a privileged position in the Western world. Now, I want to ask you, could it be that God is dismantling Christendom? Could it be that this is actually the severe mercy of God? Why? When I was at Bible college, speaking of dinosaurs, right? when I was at Bible college all of those years ago, I was taught and I believed Constantine was somehow the, the saviour of the Christian movement. That Constantine, once the emperor believed in Christianity, everything was fine. The opposite was the case. For 270 years, up until Constantine, Christianity had been a grassroots, viral, sacrificial movement, humble and hungry. And to be a Christian leader meant it cost. You had to be sincere. You, it was dangerous. It, it was personally costly. There was no status, personal sacrifice. Now, what happened as soon as Constantine became a Christian. Rodney Stark, one of my favourite authors, um, says this, Constantine did not, and listen to this in terms of our context of why might God be dismantling this. Constantine did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, nor did he ban paganism. That came later. Constantine's favour was his decision to divert to the Christians the massive state funding on which the pagan temples had always depended. Overnight, Christianity became, quote, the most favoured recipient of the near limitless resources of imperial favour. A faith that had been meeting in humble structures was suddenly housed in magnificent public buildings. The new church of St. Peter, built by Constantine in Rome, was modelled on the basilican form used for imperial throne halls. A clergy recruited from people who had been modest and modestly sustained by member contributions, suddenly gained immense power, status and wealth as part of the imperial civil service. Bishops now became, quote, grandees on a par with the wealthiest senators in Rome. Consequently, in the words of Richard Fletcher, the privileges and exemptions granted the Christian clergy precipitated a stampede into the priesthood. 
As Christian officers became another form of imperial preferment, they soon were filled by sons of the aristocracy. Thus, simony, right, the, crea- the sale of ecclesiastical officers, simony became rife and extensive and very expensive traffic in religious officers developed. In the wake of Constantine's intrusion into the rise of Christianity, there soon developed two quite distinct churches. This is Stark's theory. These can be usefully identified as the Church of Power and the Church of Piety. The former, the main body of the church, as it evolved in response to the immense power and wealth bestowed on the clergy by Constantine, in many ways the Church of Poverty, a Piety, sorry, the Church of Piety arose as a reaction to the Church of Power, being made up of those who were still committed to the moral vision of early Christianity. Constantine turned what was a humble and hungry, grassroots, sacrificial movement that was costly. It was about loving Jesus and loving others. He turned it into a rich, bloated public service and corrupted the church. He undermined the whole dynamic of what makes Christianity attractive and makes it grow. And maybe we should consider why it is that God seems to have dismantled or being busy dismantling Christendom in the Western world. Now, I've been asked to talk about the future. Here's what I think will happen. The privilege and mutual affirmation between society, status quo, the government, etc., and the genuine Christian church will, if it hasn't already gone, it's fading away. Now, where possible, we should hold on to those privileges if they're a good gospel opportunity. I'm not saying give up on scripture or freedom of speech or anything. No, not at all. But I think inevitably those things are fading away. Why would God dismantle it? I would suggest to you this, Christendom made the church soft, soft. The assumption of a voice at the table, buildings, money, endowments, huge assets, very easily domesticates the Christian church. In fact, from the little bit I know in other countries, wherever the church has been linked, the Christian church has been linked to lots and lots of easy state money, it's been a disaster. Wherever that church becomes a monopoly, it's even worse. I want to ask you, why is it that so many of our denominations act like they're the public service? And so the work will get harder in terms of the environment. That's what I think. Uh, We've already moved, certainly in this city, from being harmlessly irrelevant, in the eyes of the media and and public statements, from being harmlessly irrelevant to being, we're the bad guys now, we're the haters because, hey, love wins and equality is what it's all about. And we, we're the haters. We're, the, we're evil. And it will get harder. And if, if you want to know what it'll be like, read 2 Timothy, as Paul writes his last letter. But you know what, guys? The gospel shines brighter in dark places. And, and while environments change, individual plants and individual people will flourish. In our own humble little way, City Bible Forum, we're, we're right in the middle of it all. We still have more interested non-Christians to chase up than we can keep up with. And so under God's hand, lean, humble, hungry gospel preaching. Now that's climate change. What about motivation? What about motivation? There are many different ways we could go to that in terms of the motivation for gospel preaching. There's to bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Uh, there's the compassion and the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Um, there's obeying the great commandment or the great commission Matthew 28 there's love for others I just want to talk to you about the one I guess that's on my heart most and um, troubles me most as well 
and Arthur Stace was on the money. Arthur Stace couldn't read or write, but he really understood the gospel, and so he wrote what? Eternity. Again and again and again. And it's that focus that, that's motivation for me anyway. And you know what? I was going to say eternity is the, is the, uh, the backdrop uh, of everything that Jesus does. But that's wrong. Because I've looked through the Gospels again. It's not the backdrop. It's in your face. Uh, eternity's right there. That's why he said, let me just run you through. I've got 13 things. Um, uh, not 18, 13, but I'm going to give them in a sentence really quickly. Then I'm going to get to the real sharp edge. Here we go. You think about this. This is why eternity and the, and the, the, new, the, the age to come is why Jesus did the following things. Why he chose preaching ahead of healing, Mark 1. Why he says avoid sin no matter what the cost, Matthew 5. Don't fear persecution. They can only kill your body, Matthew 10. Where to store up your treasure, Matthew 6. Hypocrisy stupid. All will be revealed, Luke 12. To live with greed as your idol means you're a fool, Luke 12. Why be generous to those who can't pay you back, Luke 14. How to spend your wealth now to invest in eternity, Luke 16. We must not be ashamed of him and his words now, Mark 8. The consummation of his kingdom at his return, Matthew 19. He'll reward faith and obedience and talents. Uh, with, sorry, in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, that last terrible division between the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, and why he gives his life as a ransom for many. That's how you go through points, by the way, guys. All right, okay. All right. All right. These young blokes take a lot of time to... All right. Now, that's just me turning through the Gospels the other day and looking at stuff that... Ju- I could give you a bigger list for the Lord Jesus and just as big a list for the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. It's eternity. They know it's, it's so close, so close. And the Gospel we preach or persuade people with is a matter of heaven and hell. And if you forget that, the sharp edge goes out of everything you do. And I want to turn with you, if you still have your Bibles open or it'll be on the screen, to Revelation chapter 20. I remember a few years ago, Richard Koken uh, asked me to come to London and speak. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And he said, I want you to speak on heaven and hell. And uh, I said, oh, mate, I've got some really good talks from Luke's gospel. And he said, no, no, heaven and hell. And so for a couple of months, I read books about hell. And... uh, didn't sleep all that well, actually. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Um, John deliberately doesn't tell us who's on the throne because I think that's a wrong question. Uh, in the very next chapter, chapter 22, it's described as the throne of God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb, the great white throne, the same thrones in Daniel chapter 7 or Revelation chapter 4, white, holy, incorruptible. And yet the throne pales in terms of the presence of the one seated on it. Uh, the NIV doesn't quite, well, you can see why they've done it, but it literally, the, the original doesn't say heaven and earth fled from his presence. I'll show you what the King James Version says. And I saw a great white throne and him that was seated on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. It's from the face of God. And if you remember in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, uh, that, that beautiful blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And now as the judgment day is here, even the creation flees from the, the face of God. 
verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Do you notice, great and small, every, everyone will be there, and there'll be no business class or executive lounge, everyone equal. Everything recorded, Hebrews 4, everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the book of life, six times in Revelation, the book of life is called the Lamb's book of life. And those whose names are written there are written with his blood. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Interesting, as, I, as I've read, that in the, we, we think or our culture thinks of death as the end. That's not the way the Bible thinks. In the Bible, death is separation. Right? So to be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. That's how the Bible talks about humanity. We're spiritually dead. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. But eternal death or the second death is the separation of soul and body from God forever. Uh, it's such an in-your-face thing. There's such a temptation to leave this out of gospel preaching. Um, you think, oh, why can't we just be nice and compassionate like Jesus? And the answer is it's because Jesus is compassionate that he speaks about hell. Uh, he's the greatest hellfire preacher in the, in the Bible by a mile. Uh, John Blanchard and his excellent book whatever happened to hell I, I think it might be out of print but if you can get a copy it's brilliant John Blanchard whatever happened to hell he, he says this there are 1870 verses that comprise the teaching of the Lord Jesus 1870 13 percent are explicitly about the judgment and hell more than any other topic 40 parables that Jesus told half of them relate to God's eternal judgment on sinners the word Gehenna, the toughest word for hell in the Bible, um, 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them on the lips of gentle Jesus. Again and again and again, he warns about it. Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You, you can't have Jesus and not have the topic that he taught about more than any other. And Jesus uses metaphors uh, to show different aspects of this. So Gehenna, the idea of where the rubbish was burned in the Valley of Hinnon, the idea of destruction and fire and, and, and burning. Uh, he talks about the fire which destroys things, the prison, there'll be no escape, the pit or the abyss, dark, fearful, deep, uh, outer darkness and grinding of teeth, loneliness and regret. And you might think, well, wait a minute, how can there be a lake of fire and yet outer darkness? That's the point, they're metaphors. Their metaphor is about a terrible place. And the Bible talks about people being physically resurrected to be there. The resurrection won't just be for the righteous, it's for the both, the righteous and the wicked, those who serve Jesus and haven't. Uh, John 5, have a look in, the NIV murders the translation there, but have a look in the middle of John 5 in, um, in, in the New American Standard, for example. A real physical existence, terrible, lonely, empty, hopeless, and one of the worst things will be is who you're with, because you... Human nature will spiral out of control and perhaps most troubling of all, there'll be no repentance, no change of heart because repentance is a gift of God. 
I mean, C.S. Lewis put it poetically in the problem of pain when he said the doors of hell are locked from the inside. There'll be no change of heart. And one thing that I noticed as I read it carefully is this. You see the word thrown? They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. It's not that they'll be asked to proceed quietly to the lake of fire or form a queue to the lake of fire. You're thrown into something that's terrifying. And Jesus literally means to scare the hell out of us. And the other thing that troubles me too is this will be seen to be justice. And then you get the biggest, the biggest change you can imagine, verse 21... Uh, sorry, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. If we had time to go back to Revelation 19, we'd see the beautiful dress of the bride of Christ is, uh, John tells us, the righteous acts of the saints, of his people. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. If you go through that verse carefully, three times it says God will be with them. I wonder, you know, like God walks in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3. God will be with them. And where it says God's dwelling place, literally it means God will tabernacle with them. God's tent will be there. And I can imagine John flipping back through his gospel. Ah, yes, John 1, 1.14. The word became flesh and what tabernacled with us. And John promises we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know if you were at Oxygen, um, was it 11? Uh, 2011, John Lennox said, If you've ever wiped tears from a child's eyes, you'll know just how close you have to be and how gentle you have to be. And that is the image that God uses with his people, to wipe tears from their eyes. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne and said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, I can't emotionally engage with that all the time. I just can't. Um, I'll, I'll pull it out occasionally and, and kind of, and then have to put it away. I, I believe it all the time, but I can't emotionally. Enga- Why? Uh, my mother has been, who was a dear, sweet Christian lady, has been in Alzheimer's ward for four and a half years. She's a vegetable. But I know it's not the last word. I know it's not the last word. She's forgotten Jesus. He hasn't forgotten her. I... I Love that promise in 1 John 3, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And yet at the same time, some of the people I love most in the world are not trusting Jesus. And I walk through the Pitt Street Mall down there on the way to and from stuff we run at lunchtime and just so many lost people. And it troubles me deeply. Eternity was in the forefront of everything that Jesus did. Ultimately, it's why he gave his life. Now, I don't, I don't speak this to you to give you a massive guilt trip and especially not to make you responsible for other people's actions or decisions. Edward Donnelly wrote a book, Heaven and Hell. He says this, Do not accept more responsibility than that which God puts on you. If you do, it will break you. I think I've been close to that in the past. If you do, it will break you. 
I have seen sensitive pastors broken. Uh, in their very conscientiousness, they took upon themselves a burden too heavy for any mortal to bear. Christ will save every one of his chosen people. He reassures us that all the Father gives me will come to me. Now, I'm supposed to talk about uh, future direction. We just spent three days talking about what needs to be done. <laughs> if you want motivation to go and do it, well, there, there it is. There it is. Let me finish. I've stolen six minutes from Kathy already. Let me finish with a quote from a hero of mine. I never got to meet him, unfortunately, but I've stood outside his church uh, in London, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, this is from Lectures to My Students, and uh, this I think is my favourite quote. Um, at the end, it's not gender sensitive for the 21st century, but he was in the 19th century. Listen to this. We must be done with daydreams and get to work. I believe in eggs, but we must get chickens out of them. I do not mind how big your egg is. It may be an ostrich egg if you like, but if there is nothing in it, pray clear away the shells. We want facts, deeds done, souls saved. It's all very well to write essays, but what souls have you saved from going down to hell? Your excellent management of your school interests me, but how many children have been brought into the church by it? Are sinners converted? To swing to and fro on a five-barred gate is not progress, yet some seem to think so. Brethren, do something, do something, do something. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. While societies and unions are making constitutions, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss and discuss, and Satan laughs in his sleeve. It is time we had done planning and sought something to plan. I pray, be men of action, all of you, get to work and quit yourselves like men. Let's go do it.